I'm Wayne Weiser, and today we'll be reading 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak with such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. Well, maybe you're wondering why we read from 1 Samuel chapter 2. When we're starting a series in 2 Samuel. Well, let me start with a little story. This week we had such, our family had such a great privilege. Just as we've been wrestling with Laura's ALS, we've had numerous friends from the past try to reconnect. So we got to spend a couple days with my college roommate where my children were informed fully in my life as an 18 to 22 year old. <laughs> And then this past week, a couple days, a few days ago even, five ladies that were in my wife's freshman dorm floor at Trinity flew in from all over the country and spent a good eight hours with us. I thought my wife would be exhausted, and yet, surprisingly, she was energized. Now, she slept a lot the next couple days. But there is energy when you're with these Ladies, I knew uh, all of them less, to a lesser degree than my wife did, and I, three of their husbands I am friends with uh, to this day, but some of us had not been together for over 20 years. As life goes on and children come and, and, and work moves you around the country and whatever, what a delight it was to catch up on their families and to remember old stories. And there was one, one example that came to light that just fascinated me. One of our friends had some traumatic things happen to her early on in her post-college adult life. A married, couple kids, unfaithful husband, even an abusive situation of sorts. And she was wrestling with these two, three young children that she had, and she just as, as, wrestling with where she is in the what God is doing. And she told this story to us how she was sitting in church and the pastor preached from Isaiah 54. And by memory, she spoke these words. 
where the Lord says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And she said, a sermon just flooded her and began this exploration of how God was caring for her in the midst of her situation. And she said just at key moments in the next few years, strangely, Isaiah 54 just got blown up in her face. Like she, was, she, she would participate in worship singing and she was literally standing next to the drummer as they were warming up for this particular service and there the drummer had opened Isaiah 54. And she says, why are you reading Isaiah 54? Uh, sorry, I don't know. I mean, she, but she was so blown away. And as she moved her aging parents not long ago into a different home, she looked at the, the notes that were, de- were written down for her baby dedication. The chapter selected as a depiction prayed over her when she was an infant was Isaiah 54. And she said she's sitting in her parents' basement and she looks at this piece of paper prepared long before all of this would happen and she sees that theme running through her life to this day. When we go to the books of Samuel, we see that these are actually telling these two books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, telling one story of how God's people are wrestling in a foreign world to want to have a king and a kingdom like the worlds around them. And God is saying, I'm your king. And they will have struggles as they form themselves into God's covenant people. But in this opening of 1 Samuel, when God responds to Hannah and she prays, that text presents the themes that the rest of the book And really the rest of the story of God's people, even through the new covenant, proclaims. So I'm not slipping when I have us read from 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10. It actually becomes a beautiful reintroduction to the stories of 1 and 2 Samuel and the message that God would have for us as we work now through the second half of that story in 2 Samuel. So pray with me as as we reorient to the books of Samuel and to that text in particular this morning. Father, how rich are we to be your children? When we hear of your testimonies this morning, we sing praises to you, praises we could have sung all day and would barely cover all the things that we could say and think and ponder about your goodness to us. You are a God who works even when we don't know it, like my friend who had little knowledge that scripture being read over her when she was an infant would be thematically presented to her throughout her adult life as she walks with and trusts in you. Help us to see how 1 and 2 Samuel show us those things. And for us as well to individually and collectively as a church trust in you. Open our eyes, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just start with the books of Samuel, a bit of a reminder. Both of the books was likely one story, 
probably, as I mentioned now long ago when we started 1 Samuel, probably only divided it in two because it took two scrolls to house them both. Named after the first major character. 1 Samuel, if you remember, which is now months ago, 1 Samuel ended with the death of Saul, and 2 Samuel focuses almost entirely on David. You really see a theme. If I, mean, if I were to summarize the story, see, here's what you're going to see, and some of this you've already heard. God's people wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. Man, are you and I not tempted to do that? Are we not tempted to live in the world and of the world? You can just feel that tension in specifically our evangelical tradition right now in the United States. So tempting to want to adopt the battle for power that is happening in our world. And we're no different than God's people long ago. They wanted a king like the other nations. And they, when they pictured a king, they pictured a warrior. They, they, they picked this six-foot something, this guy that for Samuel says towered above all the other men. And remember, remember back in that core text, 1 Samuel 8, God said, you have a king. I am your king. You do not want that king. There is no better king than I. But God's people have nothing of it. They looked at all the pagan nations around them and assumed that was the model to follow. So they got their king, King Saul, and boy, was that a sad state of affairs. And if you've been with us, or were with us in the first Samuel part of this series, you heard how horrific that was, how many people died, how much suffering that there was, how God was, was dishonored in such things. But God has always intended to be their king, to present himself as their king, ultimately present Jesus Christ. In the midst of Saul, he provided them with a better king, King David. And you got to see the rise of King David by the end of 1 Samuel. And even in the beginning of 2 Samuel, you'll see that rise. But I will tell you, right, little trailer, he's not God's ultimate king. David grounds the promise of the king, but he's not the promised king himself. So by the end of 2 Samuel, you'll see a similar fate of any human who tries to take the place of God's sovereign reign. By the end of 2 Samuel, you'll see failures. You'll see a lack of trust. You'll see God being dishonored because that is not God's promised king. God's promised king would always be Jesus Christ. So this text is helping us see how God is working in their midst. I give you in your notes... Just a little bit of a, a tool to think about the Old Testament. I do think in our day and age, we need help reading the Bible. We need help seeing the big picture. And maybe especially the Old Testament. I mean, James was one thing where it's wisdom literature and it's constantly speaking about certain practical applications of life. But now try to read Leviticus and see how you feel. Applying that to the lives of your 7, 9, and 12-year-olds, for example. Not as easy. So if you kind of step back and look at the whole Testament, you could break it down in this way. You could break down the Old Testament having four types of communications to God's people, the church. One we could just call law. The law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And we could say that that is unfolding God's person. Who is this God who made all things? 
I've said this about Genesis 1 and 2 to you several times. It's not just about the how. How it was made. It's really trying to tell you about the who. Who made it all? Who is this God? Exodus, it's about the who. The, the one, he reveals himself as the I am. The God who covenants with his people. Leviticus, you see his holiness. Deuteronomy, you see his covenantal faithfulness. Exodus, you see his redemptive nature. By the end of the first five books, admittedly, they're harder to read than what we're used to reading. You've just got this big view of God who is, who is holy beyond comparison, but is merciful beyond imagination, who is covenanting with his creation, including and specifically with his people. So if you think of the Old Testament that way, that's a pretty cool book. That's one you want to read and spend time in, even if, to be fair, little details and parts can be harder to wrap our minds around or maybe harder to know how to specifically apply. But stepping back, see how the law of God unveils his person? What about all those history books from Joshua all the way to Esther with 1 and 2 Samuel being right in the middle? God's the historical books are God's pastoring. They're showing his people what not to do most of the time or what to do or how he led them in certain ways, how he forced them to see that he would be the faithful one. Songs about which we sing regularly are just rooted in Old Testament stories of what God has taught his people to believe and know. How about the wisdom books like Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs? That's God's parenting. God explaining. Like in the Proverbs, he says, listen, my child or my son. Don't neglect the wisdom of your father. God is shepherding the heart of his people. And finally, the prophets, both the five major prophets and the 12 minor prophets, are God, provide God's promising. Where we're told what he will do and how he ultimately will do things. And some things he's talking about in the new covenant and some he's talking about in the final new creation. But just that little grid, even the children sitting among us can understand. Oh, I see. So the Old Testament reveals God's person, is, is kind of pastoring ministry to us to know how to live rightly in the world. It's a parenting ministry and guides us into righteous thinking and behavior, and is a promising ministry telling us ultimately what he will give to us through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Yes. And First and Second Samuel is in that pastoring section where God is shepherding us to live rightly, to trust in Christ, to let him be our king. We, God's people in this time, just like he was ministering to God's people times long ago. Is that how you think about your Bibles? Do, do you think of them not just as data transfers, but as God personally communicating His wisdom, His grace, ministering to you from the text? I hope so. Well, let's look. I hope you have your Bibles open. Those Bibles that we just uplifted in before your eyes. And, and look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. The text that Wayne read for us. And I'll end this morning with showing how in this text of Hannah's prayer, there are three major themes that are presented to us that flow through the books of Samuel. They give us lenses 
in a sense, to see what's coming. Categories to know how to make sense of the details of the story as it goes along. They're like guides, tour guides, to help us see what we're about to get exposed to. Here's the first major theme in Samuel. God humbles the mighty and exalts the weak. Look at verses 3 to 5. This is how Hannah praises and proclaims truth about God. And it's like she's speaking it to the world. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows. That's a, that's a powerful statement. He knows. And by him deeds are weighed. He's the objective truth. He's the scale. He's the judge. He is justice. The bows of the warriors are broken. But those stumbled are armed with strength. Again, remember that theme? God humbles the mighty and exalts the weak. Verse 5, those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. And seven is that biblical number of the complete completion, the perfect number. But she who has had many sons pines away. Now again, that, that's giving us a general principle that God humbles the mighty and exalts the weak. Because you and I are tempted to trust in the strengths and powers that we see in this world. And God is saying, be careful what you think strength is. And be careful where you think strength comes from. Again, this barren woman who goes before the Lord, whose husband just mocks her, if you remember way back in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. And then the Lord opens her womb. Or how about just the choosing of King David? The scrawny younger brother. I don't they do this anymore. But back in my day at recess where you divide the teams, maybe you were one of those that was not the first or second pick. You were the scrawny little one with arms like toothpicks that nobody wanted on basketball team. And you just finally get picked because, I mean, you're standing there crying or something. Right? Like, no, you're going to take the, the super tall seventh grader, right, who's starting on the seventh grade team for recess basketball. You're not going to choose the guy that's just trying to reach the five foot mark. Again, those paradigms are reversed in God's economy. That, that, that is so hard for us to think about. Because so now, translate that to our world now. What is power in America now? What are we fighting for for power now? Where are we hedging our bets, so to speak? Putting our leverage, thinking that the only way such and such can happen is if this happens or this happens or that. Have we forgotten that the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength? Have we we forgotten that God did not choose the eldest, mighty, grown man's son to be king, but the scrawny little boy that wasn't even invited but was out shepherding the sheep? God loves that. He loves those images. I want the shepherd to come be the king. Wink, wink. 
second theme is in verses 6 to 9. I, I, I summarize it this way. In spite of all the human powers of evil, God is at work in the world. Look at verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. These are potent statements that say God is the true power. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Why is this true? Here's why. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. If that is true, then no matter what we think is happening, the foundation is already owned by the Creator in such a way that His providence will meet its perfection according to God's will. Even if in one particular moment or even season, on the surface it doesn't look like it. And His prayer goes on and says this in verse 9, He, God, will guard the feet of His faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. Notice that says will be. Maybe not yet, but they will be. And then this closing statement in verse 9, It is not by strength that one prevails. In spite of all the human powers of evil, God is at work in the world. Again, think of this example coming out in 1 Samuel 17 with this really mighty warrior named Goliath. Who among us would have volunteered to go fight him? I mean, you would have been like, did you see how massive he is? And he wasn't just some big ox of a man. He was a trained warrior. He obviously had never lost. He stands there with all his might and all his armor and his massive weapons. And for 40 days, he called out to God's people. And all they could do was see his power. And then that one little shepherd's boy who wasn't even invited to the selection of kings. All he hears is mocking of God. He looks like a goofball putting on the king's armor because it falls around him as fitting a child. He doesn't look at him through human lenses, as hard and as shocking as that might be. He looks at him through the eyes of God, and he says, who are you? Remember verse 6? The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced. It's the very language David used when he challenged Goliath for speaking dishonorably against his Lord. Because as we learned in 1 Samuel 17, it was not by strength that David won. If it was a pure fight, man to likely boy, I think we know who to want. Yet when you and I live today, what do we rely on?
Do we just trust in our human strength? Remember what we heard beginning part of this service, the need for prayer? You know what that assumes? That we think it's not just by ingenuity, it's not just programs, it's not just by gifting, it's not by any of those common grace things. It literally is the work of God who has to do these things. Not just in faraway places, but here's the thing, brothers and sisters, in our church, in our personal lives, in the lives of your children. I know some of you are praying for your children and your grandchildren, and you're thinking, is there a book I can give them? Can you talk to them? Can I find somebody to do this? And all of that can be good and true. God gives common grace reason, gifts for a reason. But ultimately, it might just be it's not by strength, winsomeness, ingenuity, entrepreneurial practices. That one prevails. It is by God. Well, you will be pastored to see that in 2 Samuel as well. Last theme. And maybe the most important for this book, Hannah's prayer ends with verse 10, which I summarize as saying, God will raise up his promised king. And it certainly isn't Saul, as we already know. And I'd like to tell you, without ruining the story, that it's ultimately not even David. Who was the one that had above him on the cross the title king in all the major languages of the world? Was it a coincidence? Or are you seeing how that one story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation flows so beautifully together that Hannah, beyond what she maybe even knew what she was saying, was talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, Christ means king. Hannah's prayer in verse 10 is this, those who oppose the Lord will be broken. Most high will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And here's the key phrase. He will give strength to his king, God's king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's just remarkable to think about the word Christos, Christ. Probably its cleanest translation is anointed one. The king assigned to God's people was clearly not Saul, but neither would it be David. It would be God's king. So even in the Old Testament, we can begin to see how God is pastoring us to put our hope and our trust and direct our allegiance to his chosen king, Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question as we close this morning. Do you believe God is at work in our world today? And even at work in the details of your life? Like, don't think of that prayer of Hannah in just the context of the books of Samuel. Think of them as God setting a theme that would run all the way through our lives. Like with our friend whose parents and, and, and pastor literally selected in God's beautiful providence, Isaiah 54, which he was just a certain number of months old, that would now, as she's edging toward 50, would be a theme she would see run all the way through. And just wonder, God, were you doing something with that? 
certainly with his word that he's revealed. God wants us to see that this battle for under, trusting in God as king in the context of ancient Israel is the same for us today. Do you easily look, at, look to power and might on the world's terms and forget that God exalts the weak? You think Christ looked like a powerful force against Caesar and Rome? Remember that story in the Gospel of John? That encounter in the garden where the soldiers, probably a couple hundred, best guess from the language used, they approach to arrest Christ. And there's a weird glimpse you can read right past if you're not careful. In the garden, they all fall prostrate before they arrest him. And the narrative doesn't spend a lot of time on that. This is remarkable. They know they're messing with somebody big. And they're kind of scared of him. And yet here's 200 soldiers against a guy that's about to be crucified, who has no weapons in his hand. They all fall prostrate. Do you look at the power and might in the world and forget that God exalts the weak? Do you experience either flight or fright when you see the evil around us and forget that God is truly and powerfully at work in our world today, the one who established the foundations. Brothers and sisters, place your trust and allegiance in the King of Kings, God's King. And His name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, You are such a good God to us, and we are so thankful that You've mercifully revealed Your truth from your word, you've shared these truths with us. You want us to know about your person, who you are. You, you pastor us in this life. You parent us with the details of living in the world with wisdom. And you give us promises that even now in the new covenant, you've already begun to fulfill. Help us as your contemporary people. Be trusting in your King, Jesus Christ, to put our allegiance first in Him, and to not be persuaded or discouraged by the evil in the world or to trust in its powers, but to trust in You. As we were exhorted earlier to be a people who pray, to see that from the beginning, whether it's the story of Hannah or the story of our friend in Isaiah 54, You have been working all things together for our good. Well, thank you for encouraging us with this word today. Help us to trust in you more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.